0: This podcast brought to you by the Information Architecture Institute. Through education, advocacy, services, and social networking, the IAI has 1,400 members from 80 countries demonstrating the value of information architecture to the world at large. By the IDEA Conference. IDEA brings together the world's foremost thinkers and practitioners, sharing the big ideas that inspire, along with practical solutions for the ways people's lives and systems are converging to affect society. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit BoxesNarrows.com about participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure, Moray, and i for their sponsorship of Boxes Narrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the Idea Conference. With all of the quote-unquote new media journalism, the emerging trends of crowdsourcing, blogging, YouTube, Twitter, and the general explosion of information available to people, make virtually anyone a potential journalist. What are the implications for information and for the dependability of that information? As a longtime practitioner of daily newspaper journalism who sees the economic model of the newspaper industry sinking and broadcast journalism isn't in much better shape, associate editor at the Charlotte Observer, Mary Newsom, looks into what will happen to cities if and when the mass media splinters.
1: I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Um, I have to say the dongle problem um, sounds like something that I keep getting spam about. (laughs) Um, I I come to you as a a refugee from the world of print. Um, How many of you here read a newspaper today on paper? Yay! (laughs) How many people read a paper online? A little bit more, maybe one-third to two-thirds. Well, Thank you very much. Um, I am basically an ink-stained wretch. I did not know there was such a thing as information architecture until I was asked to speak here. Um, And now I've learned a lot, and it's really interesting, and there's a lot of fascinating convergences. However, I'm going to speak mostly about print, because that's what I know about. First, I will tell you a little bit about the place I come from Charlotte, North Carolina, not South Carolina. We are not the state with the heckling congressman or the tangoing governor. That's South Carolina. Um, Charlotte is a city of about 700,000 people. And I have worked at the daily newspaper there for um, uh, several decades. We won't get We won't get technical about how many years. Um, But essentially most of my career has been in print journalism. All of my career has been in print journalism until the last five to ten years when my work also has run online and I have a blog and now I'm trying to tweet in my spare time, which is shrinking dramatically. Um, But even today, with Twitter and Facebook and everything else that that you all do so well, the biggest audience for my work still comes from from ink pressed onto newsprint and then created with these big Rube Goldberg machines that roll the presses and they fold it and they roll in conveyor belts and and it's thrown into people's driveways by people driving an old Toyota Corolla at 4.30 in the morning. And wherever you live, your city almost certainly has a newspaper like that. Um, And you may subscribe, you may not. You may read it every day, you may never read it. Um, But almost certainly, that newspaper employs the largest news gathering staff in your city. And this is something that a lot of people haven't thought about. A lot of what you hear, read, see that, that you consider news Had its origins in the print media. Um, So I'm going to talk today about the news industry and primarily newspapers because it's what I know best Um, and a little bit about the current thinking about its future and then try to relate that somewhat to what I've been writing about for more than a decade, which is neighborhoods, growth, urban design. I loved hearing Jane Jacobs and Ray Oldenburg and Louis Kahn, this is all people that I have at least experienced in print. And Jane Jacobs, I don't know how many of you know this, lived in Toronto for many years after she left New York. And I'll give a plug to a friend of mine who's written a great book called Wrestling with Moses. It's about Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses. Good read. Um, Today, the newspaper, oh, and I have to apologize in advance for my PowerPoint, I'm not good with PowerPoint. This is kind of primitive. Um, But today the newspaper industry is akin to a ship that is on a long voyage and it has been taking on water and is getting lower and lower and lower in the ocean and then it sails into a hurricane. Um, So it is by no means certain that this industry is going to reach the far shore at all and it is by no means certain that, that what it will find on the far shore will be anything that can save it. Um, But whatever whatever the future, what's happening now is this. The mass media are splintering. They are splintering into slivers. Um, Newspaper print circulation has been declining for a couple of decades. Um, Real-time TV audience is shrinking as well. And this is key, advertising is shrinking. so it's not hard to envision a future in which there is really no dominant information source in your city, um, especially if your daily newspaper goes under. Um, and if your local TV stations, which um, if you have them at all, they are probably busily covering wrecks and murders. Um, a few years ago, I got kind of curious about what what all of this might mean, um, not just in newspapers, but what a newspaperless future might mean for the country and for cities because the city is made up of, of the country is made up of cities and towns. And, and how does a city have a collective sense of identity if it doesn't have some entity that is perpetuating its mythology and its history and its sense of identity? So there I was at Harvard, you know, the intellectual capital of the universe, if you, if you believe them. It, it is a great place, I, I have to say. Um, but so I started asking around and researching, and I could I could find no one who was addressing this subject. It's possible someone is. It's possible they were doing it at Harvard. It's a big place. But I, I think I'm fairly confident when I say that nobody knows the answers to these questions. And nobody even knows what the news business is going to be like in ten years. And if you run into someone who very, very confident confidently tells you that he or she knows, um, Well, generally, in my experiences, people are trying to sell a book. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, But to to understand what's happening to the newspaper industry, it helps to understand the the business model. And essentially, to understand the future of anything that supports major, meaningful journalism, it's advertising. It's all about advertising. That's what pays the bills. Um, circulation in, in America, in the U.S., circulation and subscription revenue for newspapers is about 20 percent, and advertising is about 80 percent. And of that 80 percent, um, anywhere from 35 to 50 percent of that revenue came from classified ads. Notice I used the past tense, came from classified ads. Um, but knowing that, that's why newspapers launched their online sites and gave away their content for free because everybody assumed that, on, that eventually online advertising would, would make up the revenue. And, and, um, and essentially, I mean, you cannot even buy newsprint. You cannot buy this paper for what it costs you. I mean, it costs more to buy the paper than it does to buy a newspaper out of a rack in most cities in America. Um, but what has happened is that the online ad revenue is not it is not growing large enough and fast enough to support news gathering operations um, so what is happening you, you got a lot of so you' got a lot of social trends are converging financial trends um, cultural trends, and not a lot of them are good for um, for major news media i'm going to talk a very very little bit about broadcast because I'm essentially not all that knowledgeable about the broadcast industry I, I do know that th- Excuse me. That their ad revenue is declining as well because how many? I mean, how many people watch real-time TV anymore? You DVR it and then you zip past the ads. Um, you know, some people are doing. You know, Hulu. I guess you got to watch some ads on that. But it's not. It's like newspapers. It's not the same revenue that you get from a big old commercial on 60 Minutes. But the newspaper economics are are essentially dire. Um, I noticed that um well i 'll get to this but and and this has been going on for the last twenty years you 've got department stores consolidated i mean you you know you've got Macy's is, you know Talheimer's was hex, and now it 's Macy's. everything you know there's smaller and smaller number of stores, and places like walmart they you know they know that you know that they're going to have low prices so they don 't need to buy an ad every day telling you that they have low prices. Um, meanwhile, you've got the, class, the whole world of classified ads, um, and, and I was really interested in what Luke said. He talked about, uh, he, he actually quoted somebody uh, at the very beginning of his presentation saying that the interaction is among users, not between the um, the user and the interface. This was the problem that the the, 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 the people who ran the newspaper industry didn't understand that that a classified ad was essentially an interaction, a one-time interaction between two people, one who was trying to buy and one who was trying to sell. They thought they were selling space because you know, that's what they did. And there's a, a kind of a, you may find it funny, I find it horrifying story, that um, In 1995, the guys who founded Monster.com went to the owners of the Boston Globe and said, hey, we've got this company. You want to buy it? We'll sell it to you for $500,000. And the Boston Globe owners said, no, we don't need that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of other ad trends have have happened. you know grocery stores you no, no, you no longer see those big food ads on Wednesdays and Thursdays because they've kind of gone to um, in-store coupons. And a lot of what what you in this room do for your livelihood is working with companies that interact directly with customers one way, excuse me, one way or then, or another. They don't need a newspaper ad to tell their customers where they are, who they are, what they're selling. Um, meantime, at the same time, there's been a steady decline in print circulation. Um, this this graph, which you've now had plenty of time to read because I've only got about five slides, um, this comes from the Pew Research Center for People in the Press, and they ask people every couple of years, where are you getting your news from? And um, notice the declines in people who regularly watch TV. These are percentages. Um, People who watch regularly watch TV news, local TV news. The, the huge one is people who regularly watch um, network TV news, nightly news. Um, people who read a newspaper yesterday, and then the online numbers, um, and that's just went online three or more times a week. And I, I don't know whether that was to seek news or to seek anything. I'm kind of amazed it's as low as it is. Um, so, so in the midst of this, um, this atmosphere, you had the recession hit a year ago, and people just stopped buying. I mean, in in my city, unemployment is now 11 percent, and nobody has bought anything for a year except a few cash for clunkers. Um, In fact, there were a lot of cash for clunkers. Um, But basically, when people don't buy, then advertisers have no money to buy ads and ad revenue tanks. And it's kind of like a cancer patient who's on the way to chemo treatment and gets run over by a hummer you know you've got you've got long-term mortality issues but you've also got you know some short-term trauma that you have to deal with um, which is why newspapers are laying people off in droves my papers had three different rounds of layoffs it's why the actual paper itself is getting smaller and narrower and it's about as thick as a piece of tissue paper now um, so when, when my friends want to be nice and cheerful and try to tell me something optimistic, they say, oh, I buy the paper and I read it every day. Um, and and Chris from Vancouver, whose last name I don't know, sent me an interesting link to a um, a designer giving a talk about how that good design will save newspapers. And I wish I believed that good design would save newspapers and good content and good writing would save newspapers. But it's all about the ads. And if it's not the ads, it's about how to monetize journalism. Um, you know, and I'm guessing that a lot of y'all are sitting around saying, okay, forget the tree-killing business. You know, it's yesterday. It is not the future. Just, and you can indeed eliminate huge business costs. You don't need those big presses. You don't need those people driving around in their Corollas at 4.30 in the morning. Um, and the answer is because newspaper revenue um, you just you got to have the print. online advertising for the u s news industry was less than ten percent of revenues last year. This is a um, a reasonably um, Stark graphic done by a guy named Ryan Chittam for the columbia journalism review and he he kind of ran the numbers and he basically he measured the print ad revenue per subscriber and then the online ad revenue per unique visitor and the, I think this shows it all the blue is the print subscribers and circulation that's the revenue per um, is that per reader that's per subscriber and per reader and and look at the Look at the difference. Um, now you're starting to hear a lot of talk about things like micropayments and getting a lump sum payment from Google and other aggregators for all of the newspaper content that they've been getting for free. And in fact, last week, Google and some other um, online providers submitted up some plans for how they might set up a micropayment system. And to, to you all, that may not be good news, but to me, <laughs> trust me on this, I think it's a great idea. Um, some of you may be thinking, well, what's the deal with newspapers anyway? Even if they vanish, we're still going to have news. We've got the radio, we've got TV, we've got the Internet, we've got Facebook. You know, we will get news somehow. Um, let me describe to you something that every, virtually every newspaper reporter experiences. I know I did many times. Um, you go, you cover an event, you go home, you write the story, you go to bed, you wake up the next day, you turn on the radio, and the announcer is reading your story word for word. I mean, they don't even change the adjectives, and they're giving you no credit, and they're giving your newspaper no credit. And this is routine. Um, my point is that um, well, let's say my newspaper, back before we had our dramatic shrinkages of the last couple of years, employed about 115 reporters. Now, that's not everybody, everybody in the newsroom. There's probably, you know, you've got designers and copy editors and all those other people, editors, supervisors. 115 reporters. The local TV stations in my city each had maybe 10 to 12. So if you add together all the other reporters of the other news media, you still come up with far less than what, the one daily newspaper had, and we're not even well staffed. I mean, we're actually kind of a cheap operation. Don't tell anyone I said that. Um, You know, and and newspapers do the bulk of investigative and watchdog reporting. Um, You know, I'm sorry, but, you know, TV does some good investigations. I don't want to diss them, Um, but they don't do as much. They simply can't. Um, You're laughing. (laughs) Maybe I didn't want to diss them. I'm a little jingoistic about newspapers. Um, the Associated Press, I mean, they, they're a co-op. They get a good portion of their content from newspapers. Um, you know, we owe them our news and they distribute it and every newspaper in America practically belongs to the AP. Um, network TV news piggybacks heavily on newspapers and the print media that they use newspapers as tip sheets. Um, you know, when 60 Minutes wants to do something out of Charlotte, they will call the print reporter that broke the story and say, tell us everything you know and the reporters will generally do that because they're flattered. Um, meanwhile, readers' attention is splintering. I said this to a friend of mine, and she said, what do you mean by that? So I did a little schematic. Whoops, sorry. Dan, I skipped Dan Rather. We'll get away. Forget Dan Rather. Um, <laughs> if you want to read him, come back, come back by. Um, so I did. what I learned is you can actually draw on Facebook. Um, I probably learned more from this, this slide than, than you all will. Um, But this is the old days. In the old days, you know, I'm a newspaper person, so I put daily newspapers as the big bubble. And some people would say, no, 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 TV news is the big bubble. But regardless, you had a couple of big bubbles, and then you had some other ways that we got our information back in the days of yore. Here's how we get our information now. And I just pretty much, you know, made this up. That's why it says not drawn to scale. This is not based on (laughs) this is not based on science. This is based on how how it works in the real world. You know, there's still the guy in the grocery store line who, um, you know, people. It amazes me what people believe. (laughs) You know, so we're living we're we're living in our little splinter worlds, and we're getting a lot of information from places like Facebook and Twitter, social media. And we all know that that is somehow going to change the way news is is delivered, but nobody really knows how. But what we do know is that people more and more are starting to assume that their little world is the only world there is. Uh, my newspaper has a social media columnist named Jeff Elder, uh, and he um, he was writing about the healthcare debate and. The, and what folks in Charlotte were saying on Facebook. Excuse me a minute. Oh, well. Um, and basically what he found is everybody assumed that, that the people they were listening to on Facebook, is, that was what everybody believed. You know, the people who were against it said, oh, everybody on Facebook is against it. People who were for it said, oh, everybody on Facebook is for it. Um, there's actually a guy who's written a book. His name is Bill Bishop. He's written a book called The Big Sort why the clustering of like-minded America is tearing us apart. And he went through census tracts and other data, and he documented that people are choosing to live with people who they feel some affinity with, whether it's ethnicity or political beliefs or, um, or income. Um, they're living with them. They're going to churches with them. They're, that's who their clubs, you know, they, they form clubs, and it's all about their personal affinities. And I think there's some real parallels with with the online social media, but I'm not enough of a scholar to know what they are. Uh, but I do know that, that as um, Nick Kristof wrote a great column in the New York Times back in March, which was called the Daily Me, um, and it was about how people will even discount facts. If the facts don't dovetail with their preconceived opinions, they will say, well, those facts don't matter. Um, Here's here's why all of this matters. There is now research that shows that when a group of people is, when a group is made up of like-minded people, their opinions move to the extremes. When a group of people, when a group is made up of people who disagree, they are more likely to come to the center. And I think this is really important at trying to fathom why our public discourse is getting meaner and meaner and more hostile. I mean, I have a blog, and some of the comments on my blog make me really want this Internet happy box that that the pig has come up with. I mean, if you think that Joe Wilson, the guy who heckled the president, I mean, he was a model of civility and decorum compared to what you get in online comments on my newspaper's website. So, so we're all gravitating toward our own little splinter worlds of people who think like us. And I think this has real implications for any community's ability to tackle difficult problems, a problem that people are going to disagree about. You know, an example I, I throw out to you is healthcare reform. You know, and why did everyone believe that these death panels were real? I mean, they clearly, they were, they were, there was no factual basis for them. And I think the reason is that there were so many people who are, who have sort of been trained to believe that the big media are lying to them, that they thought only Rush Limbaugh and Sarah Palin were telling the truth, and that the people who are presenting the facts were not telling the truth. I find this frightening. Yeah. So what hap- what's going to happen next? I mean, maybe, maybe newspapers will survive for a while. Um, you know, I think they'll definitely get smaller. Um, they'll have less mass influence. Um, there's some movement in the industry toward um, nonprofits or foundations funding journalism. You know, maybe maybe we we move into the we're all bloggers now scenario, um, where you have multiple small-scale operations um, with you know either amateur operators or independently wealthy operators. Because at this point, I don't think anybody is really making money with journalism blogs. Um, a few people have are moving to a subscriber model. And if you can get enough niche audience interest in your topic, yes, you can charge for content and, and people will pay you. But by and large, the people that I know that are trying this are not making any money. Um, and the problem to me with the uh, everybody's a blogger scenario is that important journalism takes time and money. And I don't know how many of you are aware what goes into a, I'd say a mid-scale newspaper story that's not not Watergate, but it's not just, you know, rewriting a press release. But basically, you, you get a tip, you know, or maybe you've sniffed out a story. So you make, you make two or three phone calls. Uh, you probably go see one or two people. Maybe you knock on doors in a neighborhood. Um, you probably look for for records either online or in some physical place. You probably have to call someone to find out what records you need to look at and where they are, and then you go look at them. And then you probably have to call someone else to make sure you're deciphering them correctly because a lot of documents aren't, you know, you may think you understand them, but um, but you realize you had better make sure that you really know what you're talking about. Um, and you're taking notes all along and you're transcribing your notes and you're, you know, maybe you're taping interviews and transcribing them. And so finally you get your story together. Then you call people back to double check the information, to double check that you've got the context right. Meanwhile, you're talking to your editor and your editor's asking you questions. Then you write it. And writing it alone can take up to a week, depending on how complex it is. You get done. You turn it in, then your editor reads it, and your editor's got a bunch of questions that you have to answer. You go over it together to make sure that it makes sense. Um, then you turn it in to the higher ups, and the higher ups um, have a bunch of questions, and they say you got to add this, you got to add this, you got to add this. And meanwhile, the, the layout, the page design people are saying you got to cut it by 20%. So you're trying to add stuff the bosses want and cut it by 20%. Um, then you get, you, you turn it finally in and you go back over and you double check all your facts, double check your math, and um, you turn it in and, and, and you run it in the paper. Um, you know, and I'm sorry, but somebody sending out tweets about good burritos is just not in the same league. Um, with that said, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with social media, crowdsourcing, wiki pages, and all of that. Um, you know, in the Iranian protests um, a couple of months ago, there were a lot of people getting information out to the world under a repressive regime and people would not have known about it if they were not, you know, sending their cell phones, using cell phones and tweeting and stuff. However, the problem with that is you didn't, know who was, you didn't know who was behind the tweets. There was a lot of reports coming out that maybe the government was faking some of it. Who knows? You, you know, you really were kind of at sea. About all of this, this is a friend of mine um, named Josh Benton, who's the director of the nieman journalism lab where he he kind of studies um, the the new media and he's he's a lot more optimistic about this brave new world that we may enter, so I thought it was only fair to to give his side of things as well um, and he thinks that um, the the explosion of online stuff is really expanding what quote-unquote journalism is. Um, Because as he points out, there's a whole lot of stuff that newspapers never touch. And he thinks that ultimately democracy will be healthier the more people that you have digging around and commenting and poking into places where some people would prefer they not poke. Um, There's there's a good piece, if you're interested in this whole topic, there's a very good piece in the current issue of the National Journal by a guy named Paul Sturobin. But let's loop back to the original question. I mean, how does this matter to a city? Um, There's a couple of good reasons that, that we should all give a hoot about cities, even if you like to live in the country. One of them is that More than half of the the world's population now lives in urban areas. And the other one is that in terms of how an economy works, there's really no such thing as a state economy. Um, Our country is made up of a collection of city and regional economies. So even if you want to live in the country, your economic well-being depends upon the cities being healthy. One of the things that I've been interested in is how does a city get its own identity? Like, if you live in Brookline, Massachusetts, why do you say you live in Boston? If you live in Matthews, North Carolina, why do you say that you live in Charlotte? And and does it matter? Um, I mean, Atlanta, for example, calls itself the city too busy to hate. Well, maybe it is or maybe it isn't. (laughs) Clearly, there's no one here from Atlanta. They wouldn't be laughing uproariously. Um, my point is maybe it is or maybe it isn't, but that's kind of how the sort of civic infrastructure has positioned itself over the years. And a lot of people buy into that myth and behave accordingly. It doesn't, doesn't apply to Cobb County, though. Or, or Alpharetta, maybe. Home of Lester Maddox. But he's, he's dead now, so maybe maybe they're not too busy to hate or whatever. Um, but, I mean, I think it matters, I think cultural identity matters, and cities have cultural cultures and cities have identities, and I think people need something that, around which they can come together, um, and they may need it more than ever if everybody is going to be living in gated subdivisions with people who are in the same political party and all going to the same churches. When I think about city identities, this is, okay, stay with me here, is there anybody here from Chicago? Does anybody recognize this guy? See, and you're laughing, you have a happy look on your face. Um, This is a guy named Fraser Thomas, and the goose is Garfield Goose. And I I was a kid in Chicago many years ago, and um, 40 years ago every city that had a TV station had its own local kiddie cartoon show host. I thought Fraser Thomas was one of the best, I must say. And I put this up because this is one of those kind of only in Chicago things. You know, you meet people from Chicago, and they're you know over a certain age. You say, "Hey, did you watch Fraser Thomas?" And they all did. And you ask them, "Did you did you watch the time that Bezos said the f word to the kid?" You know, and everybody knows what you mean. Um, You know, Fraser Thomas and Garfield Goose is kind of like cheesesteaks is to Philly, or You know, Cincinnati chili—it's or it's like the Red Sox in Boston. I mean, there's just thing. Woo, yay! There's just things that that people come together around. You know, sports plays this role. Um, Foods play this role. There's something in Charlotte called liver mush. Come to Charlotte, and I will let you try liver mush, even if you don't want to. Um, And and I think that local history and having an understanding understanding of your local culture can help play this role as well. In the 1970s, Charlotte, and and I did not live there then, Charlotte was racked by school integration battles. Um, A federal judge ordered the schools to desegregate, and the school board, they totally dragged their feet. So finally he ended up ordering busing for integration, and then the school board really bogged down. You know, nothing was moving. So a woman named Maggie Ray started inviting people to her house. And she'd give them supper, she'd cook casseroles. And she began pulling together a group of people who weren't elected officials, they weren't muckety-mucks, but they could see that the whole city was really being damaged by this and that there was a risk of violence and there was a risk of real civic trauma that was going to cause decades of 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 damage, um, so eventually they got enough people who came together and they came up with the busing plan. And no, it wasn't perfect, you know, and people complained about it. But it was politically palatable. It was enacted. The schools were desegregated reasonably peacefully, um, and the community eventually accepted this and kind of grew proud of the fact that they had been able to solve this naughty, difficult problem. And that story is part of Charlotte's mythology. And, and I submit that one reason it is is that it's because the newspaper has referred to it over and over over the last 30 years. You know, and, and I do watch TV news, but they don't do stuff like that. You know, and I don't know who will take on that role if you don't have a newspaper to kind of bring the past up to the present. I wrote, as I've said, I write about, things, well, Right, we've lost so many people, I do everything now. But <laughs> they haven't yet made us make our own newsprint. But, I, you know, I have a feeling that they're getting the little paper-making kids together for us while I'm up here. Um, but but back when I could specialize a little more, um, I, I tried to write as much as I could about growth and urban design and environmental issues. And And there's a lot, you know, You can't possibly have sane urban growth if everybody has a kind of a NIMBY attitude, NIMBY being not in my backyard. You know, you have to understand that there's a bigger entity involved. There is something called the common good. You cannot deal with environmental problems and problems of poverty and transportation systems and blighted neighborhoods unless you've got a sense of a larger community that's got to work together to solve these things. So yeah, I mean, you can tell. I worry about what's going to happen. What would happen if newspapers die or weaken so badly that they can no longer perform that role? You know, and it's entirely possible. I'm just depressed, (laughs) and that's why I'm so pessimistic. (laughs) Because yeah, I've been, you know, I've been watching good friends lose their jobs. We've all taken pay cuts. Um, You know, maybe. I'm just too depressed to see that there is a golden future ahead with citizen journalists tweeting the news to one another. You know, but I don't think that would have uncovered the Watergate conspiracy, and I don't think that would have found out about the warrantless wiretapping or any one of a number of really important pieces of journalism that have taken place over the last years. Um, You know, maybe, maybe information wants to be free. You know, maybe you get what you pay for. So. Thank you. We're running a little tight on time, but if we have a, a question or two, we'll take them real quick. Oh, I'm going to take a book.
2: I I found it really interesting when you when, when you were talking about the uh local mythology and, and 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 the story about uh the desegregation of schools in Charlotte and all that and I started thinking about uh whether or not we can see the same thing happening in digital spaces and if we can think of Twitter mythology or Facebook mythology or maybe that's that's maybe a little bit too big but then within a certain group on on Twitter and I can definitely think of an example um I work for Organic. which is a what's is a, a a digital advertising agency, and um, and we have a thing called Organism. What's is uh, what's they started building several years ago already when I wasn't at Organic myself yet, and uh, it was meant to be the Facebook for Organic, just for people who work work at Organic, and uh, people have lots of stories about how generally. Um, it hasn't seen so much discussion, it hasn't seen so much use, but then there's been a couple of times when someone posted a just a particularly good joke that then kind of escalated and got into something and there's a whole story around that and people still go back to those stories and talk about it. So that would be kind of the mythology or the local stories around that. Um, I know that the. Uh, the point that you were making was that you know if, if you know the local stories, then it's easier to engage the local audience. It's easier to to uh, distribute your uh, message to them. It's easier to connect with them. Um, but uh, but I think it's just it's it's interesting to ponder about whether that's going to happen in digital in, in the same ways and and uh, and probably is already happening.
1: Yeah, I think it, it is and it isn't. And um, I mean, I was I went to a really fun dinner a couple of months ago that my brother organized from a group of people that are fans of the of the Joel Ockanbox blog. Um, and these were just people that had commented over the years and had kind of gotten to know each other online. And they were some of them came to Charlotte, so we all went out to dinner. It was great fun, you know. And and I think the the, the social media can turn into um, What's the other word? Real, <laughs> real friendships. Um, I, I do want to. I, I, Christina, I thought her her presentation was fabulous, um, but she did say something that I found myself questioning, and that was whether um, whether social media, really, and online relationships are taking are essentially going to become the third places in American society. I, I kind of think they aren't. I, I think they're faux third place, F-A-U-X, um, faux third places, um, and they're kind of intruding into the real relationships because of a vacuum, because we're all sitting around in our houses in our air conditioning um, on our cul-de-sacs, not listening into the neighbors, and so we're starved for interaction. Um. All right, we are. I would love to take more questions, but we're really running tight on time, so we're going to take a break, and we'll be back at 3.30, and we will see Maya Coleman. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IDEA Conference, point your browser to boxesnarrow.scom and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the fourth annual IDEA Conference, the presenters, and of course, to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that would be of greatest value to you, our listeners.